Hello, everybody, and happy July 2012. We are so glad you've joined us for yet another episode of The Edge presented by KeelGuard, the industry's first do-it-yourself keel protector and proud partner of Bass Edge since 2006. I am Aaron Martin, alongside my play-by-play analyst, Steve Brigman. How in the world are you, Steve? I'm doing great, Aaron. It's good to be here with you on a warm, sunny summer day. Yeah. Good to be inside doing a show. And we have got a good one. We've got FLW Pro and especially hot angler right now, Dave LaFibra. And in the second part of the show, we've got an interesting announcement and a very special guest. I am all about surprises and also i want to chat about those musky that you've been catching as always it's going to be a fun ride I don't know of any other sport that offers a challenge in bass fishing guys. that's full contact fishing right there conditions gonna be tough but we'll catch them this is a, this is a good place it's all about figuring it out what do you think of that huh yeah, yeah. Oh, did you see yes that? i saw that, that. was awesome <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge, everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios, high above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks. Well, Steve, you have pretty much realized, I would think at least, over the last six years that, um, I don't know how to say this, I'm kind of a, I guess a bass purist would be the, the proper terminology, but, you know, before I drift off into the normal, same old summer patterns discussion, I really want to hear about these musky pictures that were posted on the Bass Edge Facebook page. Aaron, you'd like musky fishing. It's just bass fishing and everything bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, well, the, the thing that I find out is, you know, I've always heard that it's the, the fish of 10,000 casts, but I don't know, would you make 20,000 casts that day to get to Well, let me tell you what, that math isn't adding up for me. I think I'm at about 25,000 casts <laughs> per fish. But, uh, and then, of course, the other difference in that in bass is you don't lift those muskies. <laughs> no, I, I did notice you had a pretty, uh, look like an armored glove on, on the one hand. <laughs> I did, and I'll tell you what, I've bought me another glove since then. I got so, Kathy, when I, when I was handling those fish on the side, when you get down close to them, they actually open their mouths up and lunge at you. They're trying to bite you. And Kathy's going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> my wife was with me. But, no, we went out, you know, it was one of those, we're sitting around on a sunny afternoon, and, yeah, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I said, let's go out and see if we can catch some walleyes and prop some fish tonight. So we ran up to uh, our little city utilities lake and uh we just you know take it easy troll across a few main lake points see if we could pick up a walleye or two and you know it's a musky lake so i put out a big lure on one of the lines and we caught that fish that, that you see on facebook just right away when i released that fish he struggled just a little bit we had to really work to resuscitate him he did fine but i knew that uh, muskies don't do real well in summer so we pulled in the musky line and just concentrated on on walleyes well lo and behold another muskie hit a walleye line 12 pound line the fish was 45 inches long 10 inches longer than the one in that picture and took two 50 yard runs that at the end of both of them he took like four foot leaps out of the water it was quite exciting and uh, a little scary to handle those fish at the side of the boat my goodness i can always remember when we were up at uh Minnesota actually fishing a believe it was with Kurt Dove on uh, the Woman Man mm-hmm. Boy chain and some different lakes that we were actually up there filming way back when. Uh, you know, Jay McNamara, Dr. Jay McNamara, brought a glove, and it was specific for handling. You know, it was one of those gloves that you can take a knife and you can't cut yourself, that type of stuff. And then also the mouth spreader. I'll never forget that. As I still have that to this day. But, you know, I've never caught a muskie. But I will say that I've had some chase the bait, and it's 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 a little scary feeling when you're you know reeling this uh, spinner bait through the water, and you see one of those things come up and 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 follow it. It's it's like get me the heck out of Dodge. It's very intimidating for me. Well, you know the ba- you know the guys in Minnesota and Wisconsin and whatnot they they're used to these because like I said, you know the bass and the muskies they hang out in the same places, the vegetation, and they will catch these fish along with the northern pike. And uh, and they have to handle them, but uh, you know it looked like a big old barracuda in the water. 
color to me, but oh, uh, no question. That was a lot of fun, and it's you know me. You're you're the purist, but uh, anything will pull my line. I'll hook my line up to the pickup truck and let Kathy drive it down the street if I Absolutely. can't if I can't find another way to get a little tension on that line. But I know you've been out doing some tournament fishing. You're doing a little more of that these days and uh, flipping docks. You you told me and actually uh, had a boatmate that there that did pretty good. Yeah, you know, it was one of those uh, tournament angling, obviously, I like just for the challenge, personal challenge, me against the fish, and I don't get too wrapped up against, uh, you know, the whole ego situation of trying to beat other people, because I believe if if you kind of do your job and able to figure out the fish, things kind of take care of itself, but, you know, see, you and I have talked a lot about, because I know you're a big hunter, and obviously I have roots in hunting, and kind of the maturing and, and the different phases that you go through as a hunter and and a fisherman and I had one of those days for that particular tournament to where I was on the fish you know knew that it was going to take 16 pounds roughly to win it felt like I had a pretty good shot but I drew a co-angler and amateur that was with me and you know of course they're only allowed to weigh in three fish which basically means that you know those three fish that the the co-angler has to catch have to be pretty good ones because otherwise you get kind of bunched up there and I was on a dock flipping pattern and it wasn't flipping docks with jigs it was actually if you can believe it or not flipping docks with a three-quarter ounce spoon and it wasn't on the outer edges in the nice clear water I was having to actually flip these spoons up over the boat lifts and you know it, it was a lot of work and I was fishing for suspended fish and, and the largemouth were typically holding on the bottom you would flip the spoon up in there and then the schools of Kentucky were hanging out under those docks because obviously the water is cooler it's out of the sun it's protected the bait fish right on those main channels and you could almost actually go through and uh, know exactly where based upon the water depth so it was kind of a nice pattern well I shared all this with my co angler the night before the tournament actually started and uh, we actually had a blast Uh, both ended up getting the limit in the boat by I think like nine o'clock fortunate for him he caught uh, a really nice fish a little over five and a half pounds and it bumped him into second place but you know it was just a great um, time for me to see the excitement of him and and how all of that worked out and uh, I, I just quite honestly i just had a blast and was so happy for him and i went in with like 13 pounds and finished i don't know 12th or something but uh i was i was extremely happy for him and he did a great job because steve if you can imagine you know we're fishing over these in these boat docks and you've seen commercial boat docks before they've got chains and boat lifts and ropes and everything else that dock owners put on there well we would catch one and i i didn't want to pull the fish up and over the boat lifts and everything else so what we would essentially do is go in hold the fish to where you know it was secure and it couldn't get a lot of leverage on your bait but still in the water and just i would go up in there and i would just slide the net under the fish and just cut the line and then that way it doesn't damage the fish and certainly uh, ensures that you're actually going to get the fish in the boat versus taking a risk of losing them man all those docks and cables i think that's beyond my skill set <laughs> <laughs> but i you know i know that one thing fishing those docks and i know how much you love that and and we've been out before and, and one of the things that sort of overwhelms me is how many docks there are and how you have to narrow that down to the best docks how, how do you go about that Boy, that is a great question. You know, fortunately for me, I kind of cut my teeth on Lake of the Ozarks, which that is not controlled by the Corps of Engineers and and managed such like that. That's actually owned by Ameren UE, so they're allowed to basically cover their shoreline as many. If you can fit it in, they're going to build a dock. On some of the core lakes, as you well know, they have a kind of a moratorium to where only so many docks are allowed to be built. So Table Rock has is under that premise, but still... Uh, you know, there are a still a tremendous amount of docks. And what I, kind of how I start the process and how I narrowed it down, essentially it took me uh, right at about 70 docks to go through during practice to narrow down my best 20. Now, obviously you're thinking, well, why do I still need 20 docks if we're only fishing for, you know, five bass? Because a lot of these docks, Steve, especially on the spotted bass, uh, when I would catch one, there would be seven and eight that would come up with it. So that told me right there that that was a good dock. But the reason why I still want 20 is because when you are fishing tournaments on the weekend during the summertime and these docks are so big, there is a lot of traffic. A lot of times I may pull up to a dock, maybe somebody's already fishing it, or more importantly, a lot of times as the day wears on, there are people swimming, they're walking around it, raising the boat lifts up and down and all that other stuff. But one of the things that I found, those bass were holding in 16, 23 feet of water. So you could almost go through, and I had obviously had to narrow this down by process of elimination. I would fish the entire dock during practice, but then once I started paying attention and writing down in my journal as far as where those fish were, setting the waypoint and stuff like that, then I could start 
looking for specific docks. I would run my boat through and say, okay, you know, this dock is in the right depth of water. I would fish it, obviously, shaded side as that sunlight changes, moves, angles, those type of things. You narrow it down. But the other thing is, you know, waypoints are great because they'll tell you what dock. But I found that there was only certain slips to where you could go, you know, these slips are essentially separated by a three-foot walkway. You might fish the third slip from the end, and that's where you're catching the fish. But if you flip into the, the slip on either side of that, those fish weren't there. Highly, highly grouped up. So one of my tricks is I'll take one of those, um, you know, people price tags like with garage sales or bright orange fluorescent or, or what have you. But just take me a little dot and actually put on there so that that way I have a visual reference. And then obviously that wears off and, and we're able to go on. But that, that gives me a real good visual reference of being able to know what slip I'm going to fish. And it, it just works into a system. And like you and I have talked about many, many times before, it takes all the emotion out of it. I know I've got plenty of water to fish throughout the course of the day, so independent of what the dock owners are doing, if there's people swimming, you know what, no big deal. I'm going on to the next one and uh, trying to capitalize from there. Well, you didn't know that I was on the lake that same day, did you? Uh, no, I don't guess I did know. I, I, you know, I, I didn't get the text to say, hey, Aaron, come fishing with me. Well, I wasn't fishing. I was out there competing in the wakeboard nationals. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that is a good... It's not that funny. <laughs> uh, no, that is that's that is funny because uh, it's funny that you bring that up because that same weekend, NBC Sports, uh, they had the Mastercraft Wakeboard Nationals on Table Rock Lake. Now, uh, the reason why this this is so important because I happened to got tipped off. They were advertising that thing locally quite a bit, but they were doing that down at the at the dam area, which is an area that I really like to focus in on this time of year because of of the vertical structure of the fish being able to move just straight up and down versus fishing the flats and stuff like that. So I kind of designed my practice and my tournament around not having to get too close to that. But then at the very latest of 10.30 was going to be out of there because they started basically qualifying at 8 in the morning. Uh, the competition started at 5, and there was, oh, at least a 1,000 boats that was all tied up down there. So I was heading basically back up the lake away from that as fast as I could. Of course, I couldn't go too fast because there was a steady stream of boats I mean, the lake was as rough as I've seen it in a long time. But, you know, that's some of the other factors that figured into um, kind of how I plan my day and just being able to, because I can promise you when you've got three-foot waves out there, it is very, very hard to fish a dock correctly. Of course, I'm teasing about the wakeboarding. But that is part of fishing in the summer, uh, traffic. But you and I, I know you and I have had some days that, man, traffic actually turned out to be a good thing. Boy, it does. You know, it can add a... uh, it can add a little color to the water. It can um, actually present, uh, you know, when the uh, lakes are really, really flat, and, and especially in clear water reservoirs, you know, it becomes, the bite can become pretty difficult. But just that ripple on the water can actually push the fish up shallow. Um, so there are, I believe, advantages. And I also believe that, you know, just the sheer wave action and, you know, you'll see the bubbles and that being created, you know, I, I think all that helps to just water quality and uh potentially repositioning those fish into other areas but you know speaking of of water steve i don't know how it is around the other parts of the country but we've been pretty dry man i've i've talked to some some of my friends around the country lately and and down in texas and and over in kentucky and and a lot of the lakes are historically low and you know these low water conditions i think one of the most important things we need to talk about with low water conditions is safety it exposes a lot of boat hazards out there that uh, you know you may have never seen before because this is a historic low but uh, of course it affects your fishing you know we've always been told in the old axiom is that low water pushes the fish out into the lake and off the bank but you know you know that that's not always the case no it's certainly not and i think you know you bring up the the point about safety uh during this particular because what happened and i don't want to keep rehashing on the wakeboard nationals but uh essentially what happened is everybody went down and watched some of the qualifying runs and saw these guys do these tricks and well then they want to go out and recreate that themselves and uh, even though i left quite a ways away from where the event was taking place there were some individuals that was out wakeboarding uh in this particular cove and it's essentially it's a underwater force well because of the water being a lot lower those treetops which are usually you know six to ten feet 
under the water are essentially with anywhere from eight inches to you know a foot. Well, they didn't even realize they were wakeboarding, you know, right over top of this. So, very good point. You've got to know your surroundings and, you know, use extreme caution. But then also concerning what you said, I low water to me actually you've got less water to fish. And a lot of times, you know, those those ditches, those points that are normally uh, well under, especially if you're targeting a steeper structure, they'll move right up into the mouths of of those ditches, and and they'll just they'll hang out, you know, because they know that that's a safe place for them, uh, and they know it's an ambush point. And as soon as uh, summertime, you know, is a big water generation time, so they know that eventually that water is going to be moving, and that's going to be an ambush place. For them to be able to get an easy meal but you know speaking of of low water we have uh dave lafibra that is actually called in and we are going to have the chance to talk with him and visit a little bit concerning how he dealt with very low water conditions on kentucky and barkley lake during his recent win at the flw you know the importance of protecting your investments so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Terry Backsay. Hi, I'm Jamie Cyphers. I'm Diddy Brower. This is Michael Murphy. I'm Randy Howell. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam, and you're listening to The Edge. Well, there is no denying we are in full swing of the summertime heat. And summertime fishing really presents its own unique set of challenges for, quite frankly, all of us anglers. And here to help us simplify the process is the recent FLW Tour winner on Kentucky Lake, Dave Lafibra. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks a lot. How are you guys doing? Doing well and anxious to kind of dive off into really a topic that can, quite frankly, give a lot of us a little bit of a headache when it comes to not only dealing with the heat, but also figuring out how to catch these bass. And before we dive off into that, you know, those that really keep tabs on kind of the sport of competitive fishing, you were essentially ounces from winning on the Potomac River six, eight weeks ago, but then was able to come back, and not only did you finish second up on the Potomac, but then really come back and actually put together a victory on Kentucky Lake, and quite frankly, that is just remarkably consistent. Yeah, you know, I guess so. Um, I was real fortunate to be able to rebound that quickly. You never know what's going to happen in this sport, you know, so... Um, it was a good deal. It was something that I definitely needed after the Potomac because I was really pretty devastated after that one. Sure. Well, you know, give us a rundown on kind of the Kentucky Lake Barkley system there because, the, you know, obviously those two lakes are joined and, you know, how they fish really this time of year. You know, everybody knows that's a, a huge waterway that we fish. I think it's the biggest place that the tour visits each year. Even, even one of the lakes would be huge. We have both at our fingertips. You know, I think they're probably both 100 miles long or close to it. So, I mean, the vastness of it is, is different and, and it's cool. You know, we spread out pretty good there. But, you know, it's basically what everybody talks about and what you've read about, you know, it's deep fishing this time of year, June, July, and there's just so much water. I mean, it's just crazy how, how many places, how far you can go, and, and uh, you can pretty much get away from the crowd. It's just a, a big, wide-open place with lots of places to fish and just loaded with bass. I mean, it's uh, you know one of my favorite places to go every year. Well, of course, when we hear about those lakes, we tend to hear about fishing ledges. Could you, uh, first of all, sort of just tell us what we're talking about when we talk about ledges, and where do you start looking? for these ledges and then how do you break it down choosing say one ledge from another you know I think when most guys say they're fishing ledges, they basically mean they're fishing deep. You know, I, I saw guys fishing little points and ends of small humps and things, and they call those ledges. You know, when I say the word ledge, I mean a ledge, you know. Um, I think it's a pretty broad statement. You know, I had some places I found where my boat was in 35 feet of water, and I was making a short pitch into 10. To me, that's a ledge. At Kentucky, the places I call ledges are on the main river channel, and maybe some of the bigger creek channels that dump into the main river ledge. You know, to me, a point is a point. If it's a super steep point, like one side of it, say, like eight foot on top and drops to 20 pretty quick, 
I just call that a steep drop on a point. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that I think the term ledge has just been abused, and it's sometimes not what we all visualize in our mind as we read articles and listen to guys like me talk. To me, a ledge is you know on the map, and you can pretty much see where all those ledges are. And it's and to me, it's all about that main river or some of the deeper channels, and then all those other structure spots are just you know drops or you know things like that, or ridges or humps and points and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I um, would agree. I mean, I think that, you know, being able to identify a ledge on a topography map is pretty easy because you simply look at the proximity of the topography lines that's listed on the map. One thing that I would like to hear your comment on concerning the ledge, Kentucky Lake has kind of the east channel and the west channel. Is there any difference between the ledges on one side versus the other side? I think you're talking about just both sides of the main river channel, Correct. right? The only difference is one side, and, and it varies as you travel up the river, but say like closer to the dam area, like on the one side, there's a lot more creeks and bays and a lot more distance between the main shoreline and the river ledge. So, you know, one side, there's just a lot more water to look at, a lot more ditches and channels and points and humps and things like that before you get to the ledge. And then the other side, it's just the ledge and then a few hundred yards and you're to the bank. So yeah, there's differences. Guys caught them on both sides, by the way, in that tournament, though. I mean, I, I never fished the smaller side, you know, the far side, but I did see, you know, even in the top 20 and top 10, I did see some guys over in that area. But, you know, I tend to focus more on the side that most of the fish, I feel, are coming from, you know, in the post-spawn. You know, there's all those creeks and bays, and there's just a lot more stuff for them to get on as they make their way out to those ledges. And, and you know, I wasn't focusing on those main ledges. I was more in those migration spots or, or whatever, those type of staging places that they go to on their way to the ledge after they spawn. Well, there is an awful lot of water out there. And when you look at just the sheer size of Kentucky and Barkley Lakes, it can be overwhelming and intimidating for new anglers. How do you approach a lake that size and know how to invest your time the best way in searching for some of the areas that you just described? For me, one of the ways, and and this is pretty big, is to eliminate water before you get there. You know, before you go fishing. For me, you know, there was a big tournament coming up, and this was the third year. I just totally eliminated Barkley Lake. So, boom, you know, now I'm fishing a place half the size of what it should be. And that doesn't, that sounds pretty maybe stupid to say, but it's a huge step, you know, to know that I'm not going to drive my truck 70 miles and put in at a ramp at South Barkley like I used to and, and get all scattered land. You know, I know going in that I've eliminated half of the water. But having said that, I mean, first, I think people need to realize that there's enough fish to win any tournament in probably every single mile stretch of Kentucky Lake. I mean, I honestly believe that. So condensing your search area is number one in my book. And what I did was, you know, I stayed from the dam and went about 10 or 12 miles up, and that was the area I chose to study. And speaking of study, I mean, maps are are huge, and, and people say it all the time, but I don't really know if a lot of people really, you know, take it to heart and actually go in there and and actually study the maps and look. You know, you need to invest in stuff like the Navionics chips. You obviously need Lowrance HDS units with structure scan. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. You have to have that when you're fishing offshore like that. It just cuts your time in half. You need buoy markers. You know, the old school, but waypoints just don't cut it all the time. You know, you throw these buoys out, and you can make the exact cast over and over, and it might be a little five-by-five-foot place where you have to make the cast. And without a buoy marker, you couldn't make that cast. Um, They're also great for visual references as you learn, you know, an area. You know, you just have buoys placed around, and as you fish, you kind of get a feel for what's going on based on where your buoys are at. You know, waypoints are great for getting you to the spot, but... You know, learning to triangulate and make pinpoint casts out there in the middle of the lake is really key, I think. It's not that complicated. You know, once you get out there, it it is overwhelming, like you said. But most places where you're going to go out and catch 50 bass or 100 bass, like you hear these guys say on stage, are the most obvious places on the map. I mean, you can find those before you even launch your boat. You just need to find them, mark them, you know, get out there, look at them, you know, run over them, just mark the best-looking places. And those probably are the best places. It's really... You know, it, it sounds complicated. As long as you get out there and I around and, you know, actually do it once, I think it, it becomes pretty eye-opening. And, and from there on, it's a lot easier. Well, we've talked about uh, fishing, you know, deeper water ledges and, and offshore structure and whatnot so far. But I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about fishing shallow in the summer months. How much time do you invest in, in, in the shallow water in summer months? 
Well, I mean, I love fishing shallow in the summer, especially where I live, um, ultra shallow, you know, and these fish really get shallow, and a lot of times they're big ones. I think most bass start to move out right after the spawn, you know, to get into that cooler water and school up with your buddies, you know. I, I mean, I really think they do that. They actually get out there and, and meet up and start to school and just gradually keep getting bigger. The schools do, you know, as summer progresses. But there's always fish no matter where you go. I've been in 100-degree water and caught fish in a foot, you know. I think there's more up there during the summer up north, you know, like where I live. But they're always up there. There's a lot of big fish shallow, especially this year on Kentucky. I was surprised. I'm not completely sure why, you know, the water was a lot lower. So it would seem like most of them would be deeper than normal. But uh, there was a lot of fish shallow. I mean, most of the fish I caught were in five to six feet. And I think I only weighed one in from deeper than 12 feet all week long. I think the fish I was catching, like I said earlier, were still grouping up and getting ready to move out toward that main river ledge. So how do you, you know, when you look at like yourself and, you know, I think it's probably a fairly accurate statement that the bulk of the field was probably setting in a relative deeper water situation. But, you know, guys like yourself, Jay Yellis, able to go out and kind of consistently be able to pinpoint that skinnier water uh, in the summer months. And that almost goes a little bit against the grain of what you hear that, you know, summertime is deep, deep, deep. Why do you think that is? The reason Jake caught him shallow is just because he's that good. I mean, I spent my first five or six years over in Barkley trying to make that happen. I think I probably know the exact area he was in. I've had good practice days, but I could never put it together. I've had good tournament days, but never two in a row. So I'm especially impressed with his last two years on Kentucky. But um, no, there's always good fish shallow somewhere, you know, always. And I think, you know, basically the less people that are targeting them, in practice, the better the ones who are are going to fare. You know what I mean? Sure, at, sure. At Kentucky and Barkley, it's it's no secret that the event is most likely going to be one on Kentucky Lake and probably offshore in June. So you have most people practicing, you know, finding those deeper offshore places and a lot less pressure on the bank, especially on Barkley. It's like that anywhere, though. Even up here where I live, there's always enough bass shallow all summer long to do well. You're just going to work a little harder and, you know, settle for a lot more bites in the process. Well, moving into July, of course, our temperatures are climbing steadily. What are some of your top techniques that you start moving to this time of year? We don't have a whole lot of tournaments this time of year that are down south or are on, like, reservoirs. Uh, Kentucky's the only exception. Everything else is all grass or, you know, champlains coming up, things like that. But I really miss fishing the way that we fished at Kentucky. That's kind of what I was known for around home. Back before I turned pro was fishing deep. I mean, I just love throwing big crankbaits, you know, DT-16s and 20s. And, you know, big topwater baits are hard to beat sometimes as it gets warmer and, and you know, on those flatter days. Um, you can draw some incredible strikes even out of 20 or more feet of water. And then, of course, jigs. You know, that's kind of what I'm known for now is just fishing jigs a lot. And I like fishing big, you know, three-quarter and one-ounce jigs out there deep with lighter lines. And, and I'm just starting to get into the swim bait thing over the last probably five years. Um, it's a really good way once you've located some fish. You know, it's not good for covering water, but once you've located some fish, dragging that big crappy looking thing, you know, a swim bait or, or a bluegill looking bait or something like that through there is just hard for them to resist. But I love it and I miss it actually. You know, it felt good to be able to fish offshore like that in Kentucky and catch them on every cast like that. That's a good thing about summer when they're out deep. You know, you're not looking for one fish here, one fish there. You're looking for the mother load. Dave, not only, you know, are the water temperatures rising, obviously just due to the kind of the heat that's going on but certainly the you know the air temperature and, and the mercury there is can make it quite uncomfortable but also can be a little bit dangerous when it comes to anglers being out on the water for long periods of time during the day are there certain things that you do to prepare and also as the day progresses you know to make sure that you're going to be able to stay mentally and physically focused you know during your day on the water i'm getting older and wiser i, I used to not drink or eat at all during the tournament and i you know i hear a lot of the younger ones saying that they do it that way too and you know that's how i used to be but 
Man, I, I mean, it's 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 real simple. I mean, I just drink tons of water, and I always have, like, G2, you know, Gatorade in the boat and the water. And I mean, if I don't drink lots of water and eat something during the day, because our days are really long in the summer, too. I mean, it's just not a good combination. If I don't drink, I get headaches, and, you know, I just don't feel good when I get off the water. And when you get off the water, that's when all your work, you know, you have to do all your work. And if you don't feel like doing that, your next day on the water suffers. So, I mean, I just drink a lot. I always have ice in my boat. I eat snack bars now on a sandwich, you know, in the middle of a long day. You know, something my wife makes me a couple sandwiches. I, I eat a lot more than I used to. I mean, I just feel better after a long, hot day on the water. It sounds simple, but when you're out there in the groove and not wanting to waste a single second of your day, it can be real easy to forget to take care of yourself sometimes. I'm doing better lately, though. <laughs> well, before we let you go, we need your input on a listener question. It uh, essentially comes from Mike in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. It says, hey, guys. Guys, living in Wisconsin, most of the anglers I know are much more serious about walleye and muskie fishing. My passion, however, is bass fishing. When doing research on the sport, most of the sources available discuss bass fishing from a southern United States perspective. I wanted to know if you could tell me the big differences in fishing for bass in the south versus the Great Lakes area, as well as some pointers about how to adapt my technique, approach, and maybe even my gear to be more successful in the future. Thanks, and again, that is from Mike in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And Dave, I thought you would be the primary perfect candidate to answer that question. Wow, Mike. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's an extremely tough-loaded question. But, I, you know, I think northern bass are a little bit different from southern ones, but I think it's mainly because the forages are a little different sometimes, you know. We also have some different types of vegetation, so techniques might differ sometimes versus, you know, north versus south. But for the most part, you know, a bass is a bass is a bass, just like the old saying goes, you know. There's a few differences, like I mentioned, vegetation. We don't have as much high gorilla up here, for instance, like in the north. I mean, that's something I had to learn to fish and understand when expanding my boundaries, you know, but they don't seem to have as much coontail down south either, but milfoil, you know, it's more abundant up here, but I think milfoil is kind of like the one grass that's pretty much everywhere. But I think, you know, one of the differences for sure that I've noticed is that the northern bass relate to grass more throughout the summer than the southern ones do. Not to say there's not bass in the grass in the summer down south, but I'm just saying you can catch 50 to 100 bass where I live in one single grass that I did it this morning, actually. You know, I caught 60 or 70 bass in a 50-foot little area of grass. And, you know, down south, it's just not like that. It might be because the water doesn't get up in the 90s and 100s up here. I'm, I'm just not 100% sure, but that's one of the difference. Having said all that, it's pretty simple. It's a loaded question. I'll try to answer it as quick as I can. But if you have, like, a grasp on the very basic seasonal patterns of a bass, you know, you can pretty much catch fish anywhere in the country. Up north, it, I break it down a little bit differently as far as the categories of the bass's year. But I would say, like, these five categories, ice out, pre-spawn, spawn, post-spawn, summer, and fall. And if you simply, you know, have an understanding what fish should be doing in each of those stages, and you're obviously able to identify the stage that you're in, you know, it becomes much more easy to be successful. As far as, like, approach and gear, it's all pretty much textbook and spending time on the water. I mean, what you're reading about, you know, maybe those southern reservoirs or whatever pretty much applies up here. I mean, you always try to match the forage and the basic size of the forage, you know, the old match the hatch thing. It's just as important up north as it is down south. I mean, bass eat what they eat. You know, other things like use lighter line and more natural colors and clear water. Pay attention to your surroundings. You know, like Rick Klein always teaches, I believe in that, you know, the na what's going on in nature. And, you know, it, it's kind of what I love about this sport, really. I mean, it's a great question. Nobody really knows everything, and you never know what the fish are going to do, no matter how much you read. I guess those bass don't listen to the <laughs> radio shows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's just fun trying to piece the puzzle together every new day, you know. It's, it's why I fish. I just love it. Well, I think you bring up a good point because even with our conversation with fisheries biologists, you know, they always start the answer to the question that you pose to them, well, we think. And I think you hit on a very good point is there is no exact answer. It's essentially testing kind of the hypothesis of, of what you believe. And one thing that I do want to throw in there, Dave, and kind of get your input on, do you notice a big difference or does your approach vary when you're fishing more of a natural lake 
versus, say, a man-made reservoir? Yeah, you know, I was actually thinking that when you asked the question originally. You know, I feel like up north, maybe Wisconsin, that area, um, Michigan for sure, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, we have a lot more natural-type lakes than they do down south. Most of the places we're fishing are huge man-made reservoirs, and they're completely different. You know, it just seems like the fish relate to shallow stuff in those natural lakes throughout the summer better than they do on the reservoirs. Well, that's good stuff. And I know you've got to get on with your day, but uh, I really want to thank you again for being on the edge. It's always great to have you on. And congratulations on your recent victory, and and want to wish you really best of luck at the upcoming tournament there in Champlain. That's always a fun lake to fish. It's a fish factory, in my opinion. So at the very least, I know you're going to have a good time. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for having me, and hopefully I get to talk to you guys again soon. At Legend Boats, we have one agenda, to build the finest bass boat on the water. It's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and zero-tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend Boats, catch the wave, ride with a legend. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Now you can order Bass Edge Season 3 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing as host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Denny Brower, Boyd Duckett, Randy Howell, and Dave Wolak. This two-disc set includes all 13 episodes. That's over 10 hours of Bass Edge, including interviews, bloopers, and highlights, all for just $19.95. Order online at BassEdge.com. And be sure to check out previously released DVDs like Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 and Electronics 101. Bass Edge, Season 3, now on DVD at BassEdge.com. You know, Steve, I can remember the first time that I ever ventured on to Kentucky Lake. And it was one of those situations. It was not a good situation at all, to be honest with you. They faced 30-mile-an-hour uh, sustained south winds with four-foot waves. And as you realize, you know, that lake runs uh, south to north. And so it was just ripping down that channel, and eventually there were some tornadoes that had some fatalities as a result of that. But I sure have come to appreciate the quality that is found in Kentucky and Barkley Lake since then. Well, I'll be honest with you, Aaron, I've never fished the lake, but everybody, it's just a favorite of all the guys that have competed there. And it is a big old monster. You know, I grew up fishing Sam Raven and Toledo Bend in Texas, and th- those are massive lakes in their own right. But they're cut up a little more. You know, you can find you a cove and sort of treat a certain cove like it's a whole lake and fish it but there's uh there's a real knack to learning to fish those big old lakes and uh, i know you're pretty good at it well I, I wouldn't i don't know that i'd go that far i have my days but you know one of the things that i find that's interesting about kentucky and the barkley lake because you can you can actually access both of them through the canal there but you know, to me, Kentucky Lake isn't really, it's almost like it's not a lake. It is, and it's damned, but they, you know, that's a navigable. They run barges and, and tugs and everything else up through there. And so it's, it's, it almost has uh, some unique characteristics that's that's hard to find anywhere else, and not to mention the fact of its sheer size. But um, the good thing about it is, as a result of it having the dam and the lock and dam, you get current that's actually generated from both the barge situation and then obviously with uh, running the generation for the electricity makes a, a tremendous difference versus just more of your natural lakes. Well, that's so true. You know, you and I ran into that, gosh, several years ago. We were down in Eufaula in Alabama, and we found that those fish were staging 
hiding up behind in the trees along the channel when there was water running. So when they're generating water, that does position the fish different. You know, and I've talked about it before here, I do quite a bit of trout fishing down here in the tailwaters below Table Rock Dam. And we pay close attention to the generation because that's the difference in a gentle stream and a roaring river. And we keep up with that on the website from the power company because the day before they always announce when they're going to generate water and how much they're going to generate water. Now, in the summertime, you know, the lakes are low. They don't want to empty them, but they've got to make some electricity. So they generate for just short periods of time. Here on Table Rock, the typical summer pattern is that they'll generate at 3, 4, 5 in the afternoon for 2 or 3 hours. Well, if you look on this website, you'll know when that current comes up. you know when that generation comes up. That'll give you something to think about during those particular times. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's almost like you've got the inside edge when you have that information because I know such things. And, and this is anywhere you go across the country uh, to where generation actually comes into play. It's, it's almost like what we've talked about with the tide before you know this time of year one of my favorite things to do is get out on those long tapering points right up against where it drops off into the ledge kind of like really what we just heard uh, Dave Lefebvre talk about on Kentucky Lake but take a football jig and uh, fish kind of off of those points and I often find that when they are generating it really positions them differently sometimes you know what based upon the wind based upon the sun angle they may be right on top of the point or they may be off to the leeward side. You know, that's why I think it's important to really be able to fish that entire point because then you're liable to pull into the mother load, like Dave said. And uh, Steve, we are moving right along here. Always a, a great conversation, uh, and I love talking about that stuff. But uh, we need to take a break. And not only that, I want to hear about this upcoming announcement that you've got. And then also, Kurt Dove is going to be joining us. Well, Kurt's a great guy, one of our old friends, and it'll be good to have him and hear a little bit about what's going on down there in Texas. Under the lily pads in a lake near you, live bass happy and free until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Tobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Tobbins Rods. When fishing is more than a hobby. Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Jean LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors. As we mentioned prior to heading to breaks, we have a familiar face to Bass Edge, and that is Mr. Kurt Dove. Kurt, welcome back to the Edge, man. Hey, thank you, Aaron. It's great to be back. It's been a little bit of time, but uh, certainly enjoy all of my time with Bass Edge, so it's good to be back. Well, also, it's kind of lingering and really has, uh, I'm sure, everybody's curiosity peaked. And, Kurt, you're going to get to be here for part of this announcement is, uh, I think Steve has some news to share with us. And, Steve, I'm going to let you kind of dive into that. Well, yeah, Aaron, you know, uh, we, we've been talking about this for a while, but uh, old Steve is going to uh, retire his post at Bass Edge. I've had some changes in my life that are taking some time up, and uh, I'm trying to kind of cut back. As you have pointed out so many times, i got a few years <laughs> on. So, and this is not a retirement. Uh, I'm, I'm still going to keep my hands in it a little bit, but I am trying to free up my life to handle some uh, family and personal issues and to, frankly, spend a little more time on the water. So, Steve's going to move on but let me tell you what this position is in good hands because taking my place will be none other than our 
good friend, Kurt Duff. Well, Steve, I know. First off, it's a little bittersweet, really, when you think about it. But I also know that you have some really exciting things. This is a very positive change for you. You've got the new Trout Bum podcast that you're actually hosting. Uh, so you're still going to have your hands kind of dabbling in, in the outdoors and certainly in the fishing and still in the media. So we'll still be able to tune in to you, uh, what, once a month? That's right. Uh, you know, I, I've so enjoyed this podcast that, uh, that in podcasting and, and, and the listeners and everything that uh, I couldn't quite get out of it. I've put together a little podcast about uh, called Ozark Trout Bum. It'll be on iTunes, and you can find it on OzarkAnglers.com. And uh, I've actually set it up where it takes a little less of my time. It's a little uh, easier for me to do, and you know how much I love trout fishing, and that's how I spend a whole lot of my time. So I'll be doing that. Uh, you may see me an article pop up from time to time in a magazine that I've written, but uh, I am cutting it back and trying to spend uh, more family time, and, and I'm trying to go fishing more. You know, you get in this business sometimes, and you get so daggum caught up in, in doing fishing media that you just you just don't ever have a line in the water and that's part of it too and of course it's easy to leave when you know that it's going to be in such good hands well and going back to trying to fish more um it, it's funny and kurt can attest to this it's like uh you know liking to fish and becoming a tournament angler and a guide you know that kind of gets in the way of of actually getting out to to be able to fish believe it or not yeah the, the day the days when you get out there to actually fun fish and, and kind of more put put on your relaxing mindset uh that tends to tends to get lost uh when you get into all that tournament fishing like you're saying Aaron Steve I you know I can't obviously fill your shoes ever but uh certainly I'll be able to bring my my own style and, and my own ways obviously to the uh Bass Edge podcast look forward to uh listening to your podcast about the trout fishing and uh I know that that's going to be a very informative media platform so I look forward to uh listening to those as well and uh Wish you best of luck, obviously, with your future endeavors and things that you're going to be able to take care of now that you've kind of, you know, moved along from the Bass Edge. You've been here for such a long time. You know, I've been with Bass Edge since 2006, and uh, Steve, I mean, you've been there pretty much since the time I first came. Obviously, Bass Edge, you know, started the podcast, you know, a year or two after that, but uh, boy, you've been there a long time, and and, uh, you've brought this uh, just a long, long way, and, and Bass Edge is is better because you you are here and and hopefully we can keep it going and, and Aaron obviously the anchor to this thing and and uh, you know keeping Bass Edge podcast rolling and, and he just as productive and, and hopefully continue to evolve uh, as we move forward so I look forward to being on board um, working with Aaron and, and Steve obviously thanks for everything that you've done with Bass Edge and, and I hope to carry on some tradition. Well, I appreciate those kind words, Kurt. But I got a question for you. When you and I first met, and my gosh, I don't even know how many years ago that was, we were shooting a television show for Bass Edge, and uh, you were living in Virginia back in those days. And I think we were doing a show on Potomac. God, let's, let's not test my memory. But <laughs> but uh, now you're down in South Texas in Amstead, and, you know, I'm an old Texan, and I've just been anxious to ask, how are you handling the heat down there from an old Virginia guy? I'll tell you what, you know, I, I love South Texas. You know, the reason uh, my wife, Rhonda, and I decided to move down here was, A, number one, was the bass fishing here at Lake Amistad. Um, it's, it's just amazing. And um, the, the heat has been on a little bit uh, earlier this year than it has the last couple of years. I've been here since 2008, so uh, I've been here four years now, amazingly enough. And um, bass fishing is outstanding at Lake Amistad. South Texas in general is just a ton of fun. You know, with the tournament fishing still, you know, it's a little bit farther to travel, but there's nothing like coming back home and just being able to drop the boat in the water, take folks out fishing, and just being able to catch fish all the time on, on such a great lake. But, uh, you know, the neat thing about Del Rio, Texas, and, and South Texas in general is we still get a, a plethora of, of changes through the season. You know, we get our cold months. You know, we're sitting at about a... 1100 feet here in elevation at Lake Amistad so we we get our cold time frames we get our great spring weather and our beautiful fall weather and then of course we do have two or three months here in the summertime starting about 
you know, late June and all the way through, you know, late August. It'll blister you, you know, but but the good winds here in South Texas will keep you cool as well. So it's it's a great mix. Kurt, one of the things I know has been a couple weeks now, but you just got back from the James River there in Virginia, uh, fishing the BASS on I believe on the Northern Opens, and right. you kind of being a Virginia guy, obviously you travel all over as as most of of you professional anglers do. How does that compare and contrast, and and you know what kind of fishing is that i mean that's a body of water that really for a couple years now hasn't gotten a whole lot of publicity it used to be really popular back in the day correct you know obviously james river brings in a whole different approach than a man-made lake or or a reservoir for that matter you know you bring in the tidal fluctuation so that that changes the ball game uh, considerably but um you know growing up in the potomac river area you know i I was obviously very familiar with tidal stages and and as as steve discussed earlier you know we did the show up there which was a ball you know and uh you know understanding the different tidal flows and and different things that go on what's really neat and interesting is that when i left lake amistad our water temperature was in the high 70s to about 80 degrees and when i arrived at the james river two days later the water temperature was pretty near exactly the same really uh, the fish um, this year, I think with you know the warm winter that everybody experienced, it really kind of kept things pretty much the same all the way across the country, really, as far as you know things spawned a little bit earlier. A lot of fish are in post spawn right now. I just talked to a buddy the other day up in Rochester, New York, and, and those fish are pretty much you know done spawning, and, and there's still a little bit left to go, obviously, up there in that neck of the woods. But uh, you know we had a lot of the same patterns. Or, or the fish were in the same transition, I should say, you know, on the James River as they were at Lake Amistad once I arrived there. So uh, that made it pretty interesting to see, even though it's a, a little bit farther north and obviously much farther east than, than Lake Amistad, things were still kind of the same in a, in a respect. Yeah, you kind of know you've went east when it takes you a day to get out of Texas. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It does take a day to get out of Texas, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, it took me 40 years. <laughs> yeah, but that was because you were in prison. <laughs> yeah, well, I finally got parole, that's right. Okay, Kurt, i tell you what, buddy, we're going to put you right to work here. All and right. We're going to let you handle one of our listener questions this month. And our question is from Doug in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Doug wants to know, he says, I always hear the phrase, fish to your strengths. How would you describe a strength? I think of myself as a jack of all trades and a master of none. I like catching fish by burning a spinnerbait as much as drop shotting in deep water. Is there such thing as being too versatile? Steve, that's a great question. And Doug, you bring up some great points here. I don't think there is a, such a thing as being too versatile. You know, we, we see so many different uh, contrasts of weather conditions. Um, types of lakes that we're fishing, you've got to have that versatility to be able to catch fish in all types of scenarios, whether it's the type of water you're fishing, the type of cover you're fishing, or what kind of weather condition that you might be faced with. So there isn't, I don't think, a thing as being too versatile. But to go back to uh, the phrase of fish your strengths, there's always something that, you know, you have the most confidence in. You might be strong in many aspects and, and very versatile, which is very important. But uh, when you go to a strength, that's really the thing that you like the most, I, in, in my opinion. You know, something that you enjoy catching fish on because you do, you'll do it more often and do it longer and potentially might be just a little bit more instinctively better at it. It, it might not be a situation where you know that you're a better frog fisherman or a better drop shot fisherman because you can do both and you feel like you're equally better. But instinctually, there's probably a, a situation that you come to where you see a piece of cover or structure or, or whatever it is that you're looking at and all of a sudden your instincts take into place and those are you know obviously the strengths that you want to lean on but uh, versatility is so important and and i really don't think there is such a thing as being too versatile the key to it is as long as you have confidence in what you're doing and you can approach a situation effectively then you're doing the right thing a lot of guys sometimes when they do fish their strengths it's always something that they're leaning on and if somebody leans on something a whole lot, let's take a let's take a pro angler, you know, like Vinnie Brower. The first thing you think of when you think of Vinnie Brower is flipping jigs into shallow cover or flipping something, you know, tubes or some type of uh, crawdad type bait in, into into shallow cover. And, and that's what he leans on. If that's not working, obviously he needs to be versatile and and do some other things. But uh, 
Pushing your strengths always very important, but being versatile as well will get you through the times when your strengths aren't happening. But being versatile is definitely a positive thing. Well, Kurt, would you say that on most lakes in most situations that you typically have a couple of different ways you could catch fish? There's a couple of different patterns out there, and maybe that's where fishing to your strength may come into play? There's no question about that. That Time and time again, you know, we read in, in uh, bass fishing news media about, you know, how the first place angler caught him fishing X way, and, and second place or third place or fourth place caught him Y, Z, and A way, you know? There might be four or five different things that the top ten people or anglers did to to have a good success. So, um, you know, you're exactly right. You know, when you can fish your strengths and do what you like to do, generally you're going to do, you know, I think a little bit better because you can lean on it and adapt from it much quicker than if it was something you aren't quite as familiar with. Well, and I always kind of compare it to, you know, just using a sports analogy, you know, pick any sport and let's say, I don't know, tennis. You know, if you can only mm-hmm. hit a forehand and can't hit a backhand, you're going to be in big problems because you've got yeah. a lot more court that you're going to have to cover. And, and I think it's true with fishing. You know, I think so many times anglers get kind of pigeonholed into, well, you know, it's, it's what you brought up about Denny Brower. Yeah, he's a phenomenal, you know, he loves to flip. But I can promise you, if the fish aren't holding, you know, tight to, to cover, these guys are, you know, they're going to be out there cranking, doing whatever. I, I often get asked, you know, what's your favorite way to fish? Not to be sarcastic, but it's really, it's however they're biting. That's the fun of it, is uncovering and, and discovering what the 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 most effective pattern is for that particular day in those conditions. And I think that's always what we have to keep in mind. What are the conditions that we're being faced with? And it goes back to fishing the present moment versus going back to the past. That key is on, you know, that last line there with Doug's question that Steve read off, you know, is there a thing as being too versatile? Nope, there's not. To have success day in and day out, you've got to be versatile. You've got to have that versatility to change with the conditions, patterns, and all the things that we deal with outside in the elements. So there is no such thing, I think, as being well, too versatile. Well, you know, one of my, I know that one of my personal weaknesses is sticking with something too long. So, you know, be careful with this fishing to your strengths that you that you aren't versatile enough. Right. I remember when I was a little, little guy, I was in Richmond, Virginia, actually. Funny enough, I was in Richmond, Virginia at, at a show called Basharama. And I was listening to Wu Dave, who uh, was doing a seminar. Is that like Woodstock? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was it was last weekend. You know, Wu weighed in a 19-pound bag, and he probably yeah. used this tip. And uh, that tip, that tip was was exactly this: is he would suck on a fireball, and if the fireball was gone and he didn't get any bites. He'd move spots or change locations or change techniques. So, you know, that's exactly goes back to kind of what Steve's saying. You know, you, you don't want to stick with something too long, even though it's strength. If the fish aren't biting it or it's not working for you, you've got to either move along or change tactics. Absolutely. And, uh, that, that was his, that was Wu's big tip was, you know, if, if you fi- put a fireball in your mouth and you can, you can suck it down till it's gone and you haven't caught any fish, it's time to change. So, uh, that that gives you a good indication. For me, you know, if I'm fishing something 25 or 35 minutes and I haven't had a reaction or anything, I'm going to pick something else on my deck that either plays toward the cover or condition that I'm fishing, or I'm going to change locations, or potentially if I've changed locations several times and it's still not working and I've done that two or three times where I fish an hour or maybe an hour and 20 minutes without a bite, you know, it's time to change, you know, the whole game plan, you know, maybe go from shallow to deep or from wood cover to grass cover. But, but you've got to make some kind of more drastic change than just maybe a bait style change when you get into that aspect or time without a bite. But uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to stick with something too long. It can booger you up real quick. Well, all good stuff there. And Doug from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, thanks so much for sending in the question. And by having your question chosen, you just received a $25 BassTackleDepot.com gift card to spend however you choose. So just a reminder, make sure that uh, 
All of our listeners out there are sending in the questions. And speaking of sticking with something too long, guys, unfortunately, we are out of time. I would love to sit here and chat and uh, talk about this all day with you, but we do need to move on. And, uh, Steve, to you, it is certainly not goodbye, but I must say it's, uh, it's rather hard not to get emotional, as I feel we are kind of almost coming to an end of the Steve Brigman era. But I'm speaking for all of us here in Bass Edge Nation when I say thank you for your numerous contributions to our lives, both on and off the water, and we wish you nothing but the best for your new adventures. And certainly, feel free to keep our fans updated via the Bass Edge Facebook page. Well, I certainly will, and I appreciate your kind words. And I've just had a blast doing this, and... And I just thank everybody out there, all the listeners and, and you, and, and I look forward to you and Kirk carrying on and improving the show, and I'll be listening, and I might even pay you a visit one of these days. Absolutely. We certainly welcome that, and, you know, I kind of see uh, Bass Edge like a relay race, you know. Uh, we're always passing the baton, handing it off to the next guy, and, and really I feel that's how we kind of get the best information presented to the listeners because it's amazing. I learn something every single episode that we do this even if it's what not to do so but as always to our listeners if you like what you hear be sure to make it known by thanking our sponsors via email facebook or better yet consider them for your next purchase during our next episode we will be sharing with you a brand new giveaway exclusive to Bassage listeners sponsored by keelguard in the meantime be sure to like us on facebook and don't forget to enter the promo code B-E special on BassTackleDepot.com to save 15% off your entire purchase. For episode number 145 and Bass Edge legend Steve Brigman and our newest host, Hurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin. Have a wonderful 4th of July, everybody. The Edge is presented by Kill Guard Kill Protector. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to be with Steve Brigman and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com. 